I'll be reading from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. You may follow along in the printed bulletin or in the Pew Bible. Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God forgave you. Father God, here we come before your word this morning, and we've already had a foretaste of it declared of what Paul is trying to convey here in the pastoral prayer, in the hymn we just sang. We pray, Lord, that you have a word for us this morning through the preaching of your word, so that we might partake in more of the truth that has set us free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, for those of you who listened to the sermon, uh, really the message was focused on looking different than the world. I ended up calling this uh, having a little bit of Lancaster in you, having a little bit of that kind of Amish quality where you stand out apart from the world. You are someone who marches to the beat of God's drum, not someone who marches to the culture, the worldly drum. Well, this morning, I want us to begin with a different image. I want you to get out of your horse and buggy wagon, and I'd like you to put on a Geneva gown. You know, the the black kind of gown that sometimes for special services I'll wear here. I want you also to wear a powdered wig, and I want you to have a wooden gavel in hand. All of us wear an outfit like this from time to time. Because today's topic, today's really, the, what we're going to focus on in the word here today is Paul talking about anger. Anger is always a judgment. This is one of the reasons why we kind of get perplexed in scripture when Jesus is angry. We think all anger is bad, but actually anger is a judgment And that kind of will help ground us, this idea that when it comes to anger, someone is making a judgment, someone is making a declaration, someone is um, basically pounding the gavel and saying, listen to my authority, if it's at a human level, uh, talking about us in the congregation, or at a divine level, it's anger is God. There, There is a good anger that he declares. And so... Really, today's sermon, we're going to look at anger and in these seven verses in three different ways. 
There is a good anger that we're actually called to have here in this passage. There is an ugly kind of anger that will be talked about towards the end of this passage. In the middle of it all is this bad kind of anger that we need to be quick to deal with. So think a little bit of that Western movie, The Good and Bad and the Ugly, not the movie itself, but the title. There is an essence of that when it comes to anger. So let's start unpacking our passage today and let's unpack with verse 25. Really, verse 25 helps us leave that Amish footing that we saw last week and move into embracing the larger picture of our Christian witness in the world. We are to be an interconnected people with the unbelieving world around us. We live in a world where people feel more alone than ever, even though we have all these gadgets and gizmos aplenty, to quote from Little Mermaid. But God's word opens up for us today saying, Once you've put away the falsehoods of the world, once you live differently in the world, once you've stopped believing the the lies the world tells itself and believes, each one of us, each one of us, is to then go speaking truth with our neighbor. What's truth? Truth is what God declares. Truth is the gospel. Truth is that we are dead in our sins outside of Christ. And no, outside of him, no mercy and forgiveness is found. But also God has revealed in his word a great much more about truth. Has God revealed truth about gender? Of course God has revealed truth about gender. Nobody finishes the Bible with this becoming a great mystery. Has God revealed the truth about marriage? Has God revealed the truth about when human life begins? Has God revealed... His truth on how he wants people to interact from different cultures, from different backgrounds in society, different nations, different ethnicities. Has God revealed truth on the roles within a church? This and I mean, we could spend 40 minutes going through Scripture where God has clearly revealed truth. And God says, once you look different than the world, once you have taken on this new Life, as really Andy was talking about downstairs before service, we are now to live differently. But in part of the living differently is to go to others, go to neighbors and share this. He tells us to go speak truth to our neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor? Is it just someone on the same street as us? No, of course not. Does it matter if our neighbor is a believer or not a believer? Of course not. Does it matter if our neighbor likes us or associates with people like us? No. Neighbors are people that God puts into our lives, into our community, who don't believe necessarily. Most often do not believe. And yet we are supposed to go to them and see ministering to them as an opportunity. Dare I say, if the Apostle Paul was here, he would likely declare to us, don't you know, Christian, God's put people around you in your life who think and believe differently than you, in order that you might share a word of truth with them, thereby loving them. And so we are to give words of truth to our neighbors, those around us. We are called by God in this first verse to go to them. But why, Paul? Why do this? I mean, don't you know, Paul, the gravest sin in our culture right now is the sin of offending someone, of offending anyone, 
of saying something someone else might not like. So why, Paul? Why does God want me not to just put on my Amish outfit and go work the farm alone? Why do I have to go seek out my neighbors? And Paul tells us why at the end of the verse. Verse 25. It's because we're all interconnected with one another. Paul basically says it it matters. You're not going to be able to escape your communities, your neighborhoods, not being interconnected and not hearing the truth. It's going to have consequences in one sense. It matters that your neighbors hear directly from you, that every unbeliever hears a word of truth. And everyone means everyone. That means the entire span of believers we have today in this sanctuary, probably eight decades worth of believers, that means everyone. We can't just retreat from the world. Like the Amish, Amish, each one of us has to have courage to speak out into the world. You know, the women's study is going on through a tough book. I think a few of you might have even set the book down because it's, it's especially the first five chapters, it's difficult. And yet something happened related to that book this week that was just awesome. There was a member in our congregation who was talking with a teenager who is going through the new craze of gender dysphoria. Of not knowing their gender. And so this member had an opportunity to talk with this individual, talk with this teenager. And the first question they asked was, what God? Do you worship God? What God do you worship? And the teenager said, oh, I worship the Norse gods. By the way, I want you to know something. If you know your history well enough, the modern problems that we're dealing with have been long ago dealt with in previous generations. Augustine writes about these problems. Honestly, in the book of Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul alludes to this problem of gender dysphoria. But that's for another sermon. And so this member of the church, having read this kind of book, knew that they should see this moment as an opportunity to speak truth into this teenager's life. So they did just that. They said... Oh, do you know Jesus, though? Can, can't, can't you love the God who is willing to die for you? Can't that change you? There's no other God like that. A God who's willing to die for you. And, and, and didn't it lead to an instant conversion of this teenager that actually the conversation ended with just a promise by the member of saying, I will pray for you. You're on my prayer list. I'm going to continue praying for you. But that kind of idea is exactly what Paul begins our passage with today. That we have to have courage to speak truth into our communities, into our neighborhoods, into a dying world. We're just not allowed to retreat. We have to have courage. Our our neighborhoods would be better places if we took Ephesians 4, verse 25, a little more seriously. And then God starts talking about anger. It's almost as if God knows us better than we know ourselves. Once we start talking to people with different opinions, different views, what does it usually do? It frustrates us. There are entire networks of TV that are dedicated to just airing frustration with one another 24-7. 
It frustrates us. And so the apostle, knowing this, God's word, knowing this, speaks about anger. And it begins with the good kind of anger. The anger that comes from a good judge, a fair judge, a perfectly heavenly judge. We have at the start of verse 26 one of the most confusing and perplexing verses in the Bible to a casual reader. Be angry and do not sin? What in the world? Be angry and do not sin? How is that possible? But the right kind of anger, the good kind of anger, is when you see something that's wrong, that's broken, and you endeavor to fix it. Martin Luther King Jr. was angry about racism. Angry about treating one another differently based on skin color. So much so, so dramatically so, it changed the course of his life. And he did it not with a brick in his hand to go shatter windows. He did it peaceably with a Bible in hand. He proclaimed the biblical truth that all individuals, regardless of skin color, have value and should not be judged based on the shade of their skin, but on the content of their character. That's a biblical kind of anger that he had. A good one. Roe of the famous court case, Roe versus Wade, whose real name was Norma McCovey. When she came later on in her life to know Christ, she came to know the truth about when life begins according to the word of God and the consequences of her court case. It led to her being organized and speaking out for the rest of her life against abortion. For the rest of her life, because she had learned a greater truth about God, about the word of God, that she had gotten it wrong. And that same God who forgave her for her ignorance also still called her to go to others and to share truth. That's a good kind of anger. One final individual. Actually, John Newton was a great example of it in the morning. But another individual with a good kind of anger was Richard Warmbrand. For 14 years, he's in the Russian gulags basically because... He had the audacity not to believe in atheism. To believe in a truth outside of ourselves, transcendent truth, mainly our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he was tortured and he was beaten and he was so angry about that that once he finally got out of those gulags, he created the most important ministry in the world to helping persecuted Christians, the voice of the martyrs. That's a good kind of anger. When God calls us in, our word to, in his word to be angry, it's to be productive for his sake. To have a productive kind of anger. All three individuals blended their faith and their anger and, and lived out the principle of these verses in order to advocate to their neighbors, even if it was a word that they did not want to receive at first, a truth about God about what God desires and upholds and honors and says is good. We need more of that in this world, not less of it. With the way our world is going, we're going to need a lot more of good, angry people who are so angry about the state of things that they love people faithfully in a God-honoring way in order that they might see what is truth, that their neighbors might see what is truth. Our neighborhoods, our communities need good anger but let me be candid about good anger. We aren't good angry enough. 
I mean, what a thing to hear about church. You did not know that you were going to be encouraged at the beginning to be angry more often than not, in a good kind of way. But when it comes to a good angry, we need to become more angry for our neighbors, for our communities, for our society. And what does that mean? It means we illustrate the life of Christ who was so angry about the state of things that he would give up his own life and love for it. Jesus didn't live some detached life from the world. We aren't Tibetan Buddhists in the shades of, in the shadow of the great mountain range of the world. We don't just sit around, we're not supposed to sit around at church and say om for a few hours and go out and not be changed. The life of Jesus shows that he was willing to enter into the storms of humanity. He had courage. He had a good kind of anger. Enter into our struggles with sin. Enter into our struggles with uh, medical realities of racism, of sorrow, of persecution, of rejection. And he was so angry with it at the end of it all, even though he wanted the cup to pass. He was too angry to let it pass. He drank down the cup of God's wrath, God's anger poured out upon him so that we could receive mercy and forgiveness. Neighbors of him, neighbors that had first rejected his truth, first rejected his word. That's a good kind of anger. But verse 26 also has a second kind of anger. Anger I'm calling the bad kind of anger. This is the kind of anger that we come back to that opening illustration. We get that powdered wig on with our Genevan gowns and our um, gavel at the ready. When we take the throne, we take the seat of judgment. This is the kind of anger that destroys relationships. <coughs> anger goes bad when it becomes us trying to be godlike in the worst kinds of ways. When our own personal hobby horses and preferences become divine law. Every example of this kind of anger has at least one person trying to play God. Uh, usually it's two. Usually it takes two to tango for this kind of anger. See, when we get angry in this kind of way, we're often saying our desires, our rules, our ruling must be followed. Let me illustrate this way. Tardiness happens. We've all had situations where we were either late to get to someone or someone was late to come to us. And yet there's no passage in the Bible that tells us, hey, when you're stuck in traffic, you need to start ranting and raving like a loon. You need to start uttering, you know, imprecatory songs or something like that. There's no passage that tells us how to respond to these moments of tardiness. There's actually this interesting moment in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. We see, and we don't really think about this much, but we have this moment where Lazarus dies. And the disciples and Mary and Martha, it, it shows us enough to show, in one sense, they're all looking at their watches going, Hey, Jesus, Jesus, you're tardy. You've you got to get moving, Jesus. You got to get rolling. Why why were you late, Jesus? Why were you tardy? Was that a righteous anger that they had? No, of course not. God was using the delay in order to accomplish something, but also it teaches us something that 
We don't do well when we're wearing the, ga- the gown, the powdered hat, and the gavel. We need to be very careful. We're not being angry about things that God's not angry about. When we get this kind of anger, actually, I'm going to use another illustration real quick. I woke up yesterday, I was a little disappointed about the weather. I'm guessing I wasn't the only person a little miffed about the weather. Come on! Not only are we not going to be able to have outdoor worship today, but raining on the rummage sale day, ah, this is awful. And I, I still am, am glad to see people like Rose Kramer and Karen and Bruce here and, and Kathy because they were in the lower pavilion at one time and I thought the, the weather was doing its best to allow them to freeze to death. I actually created a warming hut for them. And yet, what did God do? While we might have grumbled about the weather, he made it the most successful rummage sale that I believe the church has ever had. What was all that grumbling good for? What did it accomplish? We should have not been wearing the judge's gown. We get this kind of anger people and sometimes even we can put God into our crosshairs. And we unload on people. Or we just are so frustrated that we, we, we shelter up. This kind of anger we really need to be careful and holding on to. And what God's word says here next is going to be harder to obey for you passive-aggressive types in the room. Um, You know who you are. I am not one of you, usually. Um, I have other areas in scripture I need to uphold to. um, And I still need to uphold to this. Those of us who just like to air out our dirty laundry out in the open as soon as possible, we have some slight advantage here. But we're not supposed to let the sun go down on our anger. Which in our modern word with the light bulb, we've kind of forgotten this idea of this. Remember, this is spoken to an ancient world pre-Edison. This is a world where when the sun was going down, you need to make sure the farm animals were in. You need to make sure the doors were latched. You need to make sure you needed all these little things that you accomplished, the laundry in, the fire going, the crops in, the harvest in, And God's saying, wait, 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 wait. Before you shut the door tonight, you have one other thing to add to your list. Before you go to bed, before you lock up, don't let your anger stew. Don't allow yourself to be so angry that you sleep on it. The best and most helpful premarital advice my wife and I got, she's she's more of the um, passive-aggressive type. She likes to stew on it. I'm more of the let's just have this out here type. And this couple who had had nine children a long time in marriage just said to us, okay, this is, what, this is the terms that you need to, to agree on. She's allowed to call time out in an argument. But she's got to give you a time. She's coming back. And it can't be like three weeks from now. It's got to be like 20 minutes. And that's worked. And when we've honored that biblical principle, really, it's blessed our marriage. The times where we've said, forget about it, it hasn't blessed our marriage. God's word blesses us. Good anger seeks resolution. And so we, when we fall into bad anger, still need to fix the problem by running back to good anger. And if you, ha- if you forget that good anger, 
fixes, uh, seeks resolution, just remember the cross. If you really think on the cross, it is an illustration of this. And then the focus, there's a focus on the last type of anger. And the last type of anger is an ugly type of anger. But before getting into an ugly kind of anger, I do have to have an aside here. There is a fourth kind of anger that we're not going to ignore today. In Jesus' sermon on the mount, he makes clear that at the heart of anger is the sin of murder. This is why when we really get angry with people, sometimes we just totally cut off communication with them. But let me say this, and I hope this applies to nobody here. And by the way, I also say this as someone who's had experience with this reality and the fact that I received one time at 19 physical anger from a group of young men that had forced me to entirely walk away from friends that I had and change the course of my life. The beautiful resolution to doing that is within six weeks the Lord saved me. But I'm someone who has had experience being a victim of anger unchained. But, if, but before we get into the ugly kind of anger Paul's talking about here, if anger ever leads to physical violence, it is wise at that point. It is coming too close to the darkest roots of anger that there needs to be a separation. There needs to be a separation at least for a time until that is no longer in the mentality or the mindset of the parties. You, you would actually be loving one another in that reality. But back into the text now. The last kind of anger the Apostle Paul brings up today is really the kind of anger we're all too unfortunately familiar with. The anger we often let stew. This is a mean-spirited kind of anger. When you want to kind of destroy the individual, there's that German word, I can't pronounce it, I know some of you know it, like where you delight in the suffering of your enemy. Freuden? I don't know, forget it. So, but in whom you're angry at, and you want to entirely cut them off. Often this kind of anger happens when people in judge costumes are just busy demanding and smashing the gavel and how they want things to go. This is us as Christians at our worst. When we get angry to this degree, anger sets in and it's a really a great distorter of everything we hear. We begin, we begin to just, in arguments, we're no longer really listening. We're listening to pounce, to strike back, to lash back. We're, we're only listening to things that affirm our current wavelength, what we've decided is true. And we start looking at everything where we just wanted to prove our lens to be right. When my wife and I let such an anger uh, get the better of us in our own marriage, this is the type of anger that needs to have us eventually gather the kids around and to apologize to them as well because it's an ugly sight to behold. And sustained anger of this kind can incinerate marriages. It disintegrates families. It fuels gossip. It divides churches. It makes friends foes. And it really needs to be fought against. 
And honestly, this kind of anger won't fully go away until we do the hard work here and seek a better kind of anger rather than an ugly kind. Anger like this festers like a wound and can express itself not just to the individual we're angry at, but to others in our life, in our relationship. And this anger, as the Apostle Paul talks about here, has many weapons it can bring to the table. Corrupting talk. Grieving the Holy Spirit. What basically God wants for you. This is a bitter anger. It is a wrathful anger. It is a clamorous and noisy anger. A slanderous anger. And it's attached to malice and cruelty according to our text. And we've all fallen into this kind of anger from time to time. Whether in our minds or in spoken word. We've all struggled with these kinds of weapons before. And yet, even with the ugliest kind of anger that Paul gets into here in Ephesians chapter 4, if we can put down our gavel, if we can remove our powdered wig and our Geneva gown, and just go back to letting God be the judge, listening to him when he tells us to make haste before nightfall, to seek to restore, making peace with those around us who we're angry with, and let him be the guiding light, oh, how good it would be to aim to find anger in such a way, a good kind of way, where we seek out forgiveness. We can do incredible things in such moments. We can make peace where wrong has occurred when we lay down that gavel of hostility. While it's incredibly hard, it's some of the greatest work we can ever do as Christians. You know a great way to handle this overwhelming kind of anger? It's for us to realize anger like this is wrong and it needs to be solved. Let me repeat that. Anger like this is wrong. We all agree. It got more silent in here. We all agree. And it needs to be solved. And isn't that what God did with his anger towards sin? Didn't he say, this is wrong? This humanity was created in my image. This is wrong. They're delighting in wickedness. They're delighting in sin. This is wrong. This problem needs to be solved. And in the heavenly courts, our one God and three persons said, let's solve it. And they solved it together. The the Father gave the Son. The Son lived the life we could not live and allowed Himself the the cup of wrath. He drank it down in order to be our sacrificial lamb. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us of the truth. So, Jesus allowed night to fall in the Garden of Agony so that we could have the beautiful Garden of Easter morning. And when we remember that, we now have the power to to be tender-hearted and forgiving of one another. We, we have the power to remove the Geneva gown, to remove the powdery wig, to say, I don't want the gavel, because I remember the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I remember he, he's called me to a better kind of anger, a good anger. The gospel means we understand God has every right to be angry with us. We have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, and yet, in his good anger... He came up with a way of salvation from the wrath that we deserve. And when we remember that, and we behold that, we can begin to find the courage 
to hand over the wrath we've been holding on to with friends, with family members maybe, and for one another, and lay it down in order that we might not give the devil any opportunity, as the word says here, in order to enter into our lives and those, the lives of those whom we love. So let us now disrobe from the Geneva gown, remove the powdered wig. I do not want us leaving here with it. Set down the wooden gavel, remembering bad and ugly anger, where we make ourselves out to be God, and judged by unjust standards are unworthy of us holding on to. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that while you were angry with us, you found a good and merciful anger, a productive anger, an anger that looked at the problems of the world and said, I do not want this to be anymore, so I give my son. Help us to be changed by this truth. Help us to have courage through this truth. Help us to not just retreat from the world, but to be able to offer to the world, a dying world, a world that worships false gods, gods that offer no truth. A better word from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.